Amen. So can we turn in our Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 9 and look at a few verses there. Um, we're talking about the Apostle Paul and he himself is a fascinating uh, subject of study. But what I want to show today, not for the sake of it, but it's important for us to know, is that uh, there's a lot of suppressed truth and uh, about Paul. There's a lot of um, suppressed history, or, or when I say suppressed, I think there's been a suppression, but there's also a great amount of ignorance in mainstream church, mainstream Christianity. So he, he is a fascinating subject, but probably the most fascinating aspects of Paul's ministry are not really known, and, or as I said, they're suppressed by people. And we'll look at that today, why that would be. And it very much is. So Acts chapter 9, and I'm just going to read a few verses beginning from verse 10. And if you ask someone in mainstream church, who was Paul sent to, you'll get one of two answers or both answers, which Paul was sent to the Gentiles. Uh, or Paul was sent to Israel, the children of Israel. And both are true. But they're only partial truth. So that's only partial truth. And as we'll see, the fact that Paul was not just sent to the Gentiles and was not just sent to the children of Israel, um, that's the bit that people are ignorant of. And that's the bit that we as BIs need to look at. So Acts chapter 9 verse 10, and there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth, and hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in, and putting his hand on him, that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man. How much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, as I said in that little passage, we see that Paul was called to the Gentiles, which really means the nations. Um, and we'll look at it. It was, it was Gentilized Israel that is meant by the nations. okay, And, of course, the children of Israel. And that, that would be... Maybe in our understanding, what we the, the, the Judaites um, of, of Israel. So, in other words, he's called to the nations, which I think David even mentioned in his prayer, those that were no longer uh, part of Israel because they had been divorced. And of course, he was called to his his own people. But look at that little word in the middle, kings. Paul was called to the nations, he was called to Israelites, but he was also called to kings. The three people groups that Paul was called to 
the nations or Gentiles, his own people, the Judites, and of course, kings. So the Lord very clearly mentioned kings specifically as a people group that Paul was called to. And that's what we're going to look at a little bit today about who's, what was Paul's ministry then to kings. Now, I want to say this, it wasn't just that he testified before Agrippa. Okay, and a lot of people in the main, oh yes, he, he, he spoke to Agrippa well, he gave his testimony and preached a message to Agrippa, who was obviously of the Herodian line, and we would class that as a, a king uh, of Israel um, as such. So that's not what is meant by Paul's ministry to kings, just wanted to get that out of the way. So who, what kings then was Paul sent to minister to? And that's what we'll look at if we turn to Romans chapter 1. And we'll look at verse, verses 7 and 8, Romans chapter 1. And Paul is writing here, he begins in verse 1, A servant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Verse 7 he says, To all that be in Rome. To all that be in Rome. Now, I don't believe that Paul was writing to every person who was in Rome. He's talking to the church at Rome. And I'm going to have to be very careful here. And you can rebuke me if I make the mistake of saying the Roman church. Okay? I'll, I'll, I'll do my best to continue to say the church in Rome. Okay? Because we're not talking about the Roman church today. At least not uh, in a nice way. So to all that be in Rome, meaning the Roman church, so the church of Rome, church in Rome, sorry. There you are, done it, see? And, and I, I was trying so hard, and I've even written it out, made sure I wrote it out. So all that be in church, the church in Rome, the church at Rome. Beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. So he's talking to a church or an ecclesia in Rome that is well known. Okay? And that I believe there's a reason why it's well known, which is what we're looking at today. Um, and so the church at Rome met in a special building. And that building was known as the Palatium Britannicum. Or in, in modern English, the Palace of the Britons, or the British Palace. We have a hill right next to us where we stay called Barton's Hill, and, and it, it means Britain's Hill. So um, he lived, or the church met in the Palace of the Britons. Okay? So the Palace of Britannicum was where, and this is what's important, and this fulfills, that's what I'm, I'm trying to say, this fulfills that third people group that Paul was sent to, to minister to kings, because the Palatium Britannicum was where members of where British royal families lived in Rome. And by British royal families, I need to stress, I'm not talking about what, what we understand as a royal house, a royal family, because back then Britain was a, a number of kingdoms there were different kingdoms, different uh, kings and kingdoms. It was far more tribal in effect. And of course, but the ones that met in Rome were from, the, they were the Silurian family, 
okay? And they had a number of uh, sort of different kingdoms within the Silurian, uh, you know, uh, family. So after the epic battles that were fought between Rome and these British kingdoms, uh, and, and what, I'll, what I'll say is, uh, Pastor Sheldon Emery writes about this, and he actually says that the reason Rome went to war with these kings is because they had embraced Christianity and they were preaching and, and setting up their kingdoms to be Christian. And Rome had just about had enough of this because it was a threat to their pagan their idolatry and also their ideology. And so therefore Rome, um, that was the reason that Rome went to war against these Silurian kings. Okay, um, so I'm not saying there were other political reasons and so on, but these resulted, this opposition resulted in epic battles fought between Rome and these kingdoms in Britain. And of course, uh, the mighty warrior chieftain Caradoc, uh, who was the son of Bran the Blessed, or as the Romans called him, Caractacus, and if you remember Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, one of the characters I always remember was Caractacus Potts, uh, but you know, this was Caractacus the king, and he was a mighty famed general, strategist, warrior, uh, and a, a believer. And eventually, they, he lost these battles. Rome, but Rome had to throw everything virtually at this. It was a little bit like this situation we have just now in Ukraine, where maybe the resistance. The Russians didn't fully expect there to be as much resistance, so they're having to throw more into the battle, okay? Well, Rome was a little bit like that. They found that it was very tough against, and in fact, they, they threw their best generals and fighting forces. But eventually, the British um, had, to, the, had to surrender. So Caractacus, or Caradoc, was taken along with his father, Bran the Blessed, and other members of the royal household then, was taken to live in Rome, and without going into too great detail, um, rather than be slain publicly, um, they were allowed to live in the Palatium Britannicum in Rome. And that's where the church, when we talk about the Romans, Paul's epistle to the Romans, that's where the church was held, in this big building. And the members of that church were all, or mostly royals, you know, it would be a little bit like if the royal family and different cousins and dukes were all in our assembly today. And so the church at Rome is where these people met. And the daughter of Caractacus was named Gladys and she was renamed Claudia by the emperor. She married Rufus Pudens Pudentius, a Roman senator who was an aide to the Roman commander-in-chief Aulus Platius, who also married another Gladys, who was Claudia's aunt. So that it was all very, you know, there, there, were, there was a lot of mar marrying going on between what you would call Roman aristocracy and these British royals or Silurian royals. And in short, folks, the church at Rome was made up of British royals comprised of Silurian royalty. Now Paul had a very close affinity with this church which was partly familial as we'll see but also this was a fulfilment 
of this calling that, was, that, we, that we saw in Acts to nations, to his own people, and of course to kings. And this was the part where the kings, if you like, came into it. And we'll see how that is important to Britain's destiny even today, 2,000 years later. Because we're actually just coming into some of the things that Paul wrote about both in Scripture um, and also, uh, as we'll see, uh, uh, other places. Paul was intimately connected to these royal personages, both by ministry and by family ties. That's the key thing that we need to grasp from this. Paul had a connection to these people. It wasn't just, oh, I'll write them a nice wee letter. He, he was intimately involved with that group at the Palatium Britannicum. And of course, Rufus Pudens, who's mentioned in Romans 16 and verse 13. Let's just go there and we'll see what it says. Um, Romans chapter 16, verse 13, where he, he's, he's saying to salute a number of people. And he says, salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. So it's believed that, and Paul refers to Rufus's mother as his own, so scholars believe that Rufus was Paul's brother. Uh, very plausibly, maybe most likely, we could say his half-brother. Uh, there is a school of thought that says his mother remarried because, because Paul was from Tarsus, um, and so it, perhaps his mother remarried. But this would make the British Silurian princess Gladys stroke Claudia, who was Caractacus's daughter, Paul's sister-in-law. So Paul, by marriage, was, uh, not his own marriage, but by marriage was connected as the brother-in-law of a British royal princess. Okay? So, indeed, the Roman martyrologies state that the children of Claudia were brought up on the knee of St. Paul. So it's so important for us to, to grasp this, that when Paul's writing to these Romans, he's not just writing to folks, oh, the folks at Rome, how are you doing? He's writing knowing who they are. And so a lot of what Paul writes in Romans is about that. For example, and I don't want to spend a lot of time doing it, uh, looking at this, but if you think about it, if you know the book of Romans, obviously, you'll know that Paul is writing about kind of doctrinal, theological, deep things that we would say maybe are, are, are personal and individual. Um, and then all of a sudden, chapter 9, he just starts talking about Israel. He just goes off on a tangent. But that tangent is not just he was rambling. There's a purpose for it. He's writing to them based on he knows their, you know, their background, their royal background, their national background, the, the geography of where they came from, and their place in the earth. And when he's writing about uh, Israel, which he does in chapters 9, 10, and 11, if you go and check, you'll see he, he quotes the prophet Isaiah, he quotes Hosea, and we'll maybe look at that in a wee minute, and he also quotes Elijah. And in all three occasions when he's quoting these prophets, these prophets were not talking about Judah, but ten tribe Israel. So he's acknowledging that these people who we know, um, if you go and check the genealogical charts um, about a royal house, 
that's in the big pink book, Britain's Royal Destiny, you can, you can still get it. You'll see that these people he's speaking to are actually named in the charts as part of our, uh, the, our royal uh, line today. And descended, this is important, these people were descended from King David. So they're Davidic royalty, they're not just British royalty, they have Davidic, they're of the Davidic bloodline and ancestry. So important. So, and in fact, let's just, it says it in this little book, and I'm sure some of you have it, the lost chapter uh, of the Acts of the Apostles, the Sardini Manuscripts, which, which we will look at later. It says, when Paul came to Rome, there remained three years of parole for Caractacus to complete. At that time, the residents of the Palatium Britannicum were the high priest, Bran. He had left the kingship to become a, a druid high priest. King Caractacus and the Queen, his wife, his daughter, the Princess Jurgen and her husband Salob, Lord of Salisbury, her brother, the immortal Prince Linus, and we'll look at him later, now a Christian bishop, also resident, was the Emperor's adopted daughter Claudia and her husband, the Senator Pudens, his mother Priscilla, Pastor Hermes and Silenus and Sinan. Some of these names are, are in the scripture record, folks. The sons of Caractacus. There were other members of the Putin's Christian household dedicated to the faith, but those mentioned are the important ones to remember. So we're not talking about, um, you know, any old person here. We're not talking about, you know, Joe Public. We're speaking about royal personages who have Davidic ancestry and who themselves um, were in that royal line, which today uh, get into the English kings, which today our present queen and royal house are descended from. So Paul's calling to these people because all these people mentioned and others were instrumental in bringing the Christian faith to these shores, to, to, to Britain, and were instrumental in the very, early, the very early church in Britain, which then, of course, became the Celtic and Culby church. So from a very... Short, a very short time after the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension and glorification of our Lord. And, and I'm not saying even that these folks were the first. Joseph of Arimathea came. And others. And we're going to look at Paul being in Britain in a minute. So clearly Paul had a massive influence on the royal family at Rome. What I'm trying to say here is there is a historic foundation here of Paul's influence on our nation, on our royal family, you know, going back, way back, and also on Christianity in Britain. So Paul in his lifetime had that. But what Paul had to say, both in the biblical record and also elsewhere, which we'll look at, speaks to the very day we live in and gives hope to us here today in perhaps one of the darkest times in our nation's history. Certainly when we see what's on the horizon in the nations. So Paul's message, Paul has a message, I believe, for us today. And it's a message that's in a sense been hidden from the mainstream, although it's in plain sight in scripture. But that message, I believe, will give everybody in here hope as we leave here today. That things are not as bleak as they see, 
because God is in control. Clearly, Paul had a massive influence on the royal family at Rome, an influence that impacted Britain itself. And, you know, it, it was it said in one of the, the, these wee booklets, the British church was from its cradle, apostolic and royal. Okay, and Paul was at the very heart of this. I believe Paul was the instrument that God chose to bring structure in a way to it all and to influence particularly Silurian royals and, and, and then beyond that. And if you turn to Second Timothy chapter 4, we'll just see something in there. Because you, you sometimes read these biblical names, and especially if you're in the mainstream church, you read these, they're just people. Does that make sense? They're just folks to the, to, to the mainstream church. Just names, old names, Greek names, Roman names, just, you know, there could be anybody in that thinking. But they're not just anybody. They're people clearly chosen for a purpose. So in 2 Timothy chapter 4, in verse 21, he's saying to, to young Timothy, Do thy diligence to come before winter. Eubulus greeteth thee, and Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. Now, Eubulus, some scholars believe that, that this is short for Aristobulus, but whether or not that's the case, Aristobulus was the first bishop to Britannia. Okay, he may have been one of the 70 sent by Christ. You remember, Christ had 70 beyond the 12, and a lot of scholars believe that. Pudens, of course, was Paul's brother, stroke half-brother. Claudia was his wife. She was the royal princess. And this is the thing, Linus, who became bishop or overseer of the church in Rome, was Claudia's brother, a royal prince of Silurian royalty, Caractacus's son or Caradoc's son. These weren't just folks. These were people of royal lineage and, and royal bloodline. So important for us to understand that. So the Silurian kingdoms were very much Christian and as Pastor Emery uh, believes and pointed out and others that the, the very reason they were Christian was the reason that Rome went to war with them because Rome had had enough of this new sect which was uh, blazing wildfire across the Roman Empire and especially in the Britannic Isles. And these kingdoms, this is the key thing, were greatly influenced by and spoken into by, at the very highest level, the Apostle Paul. And that's vital. It's, it's like if one of us today had a hotline to Queen Elizabeth and the Royal House and met with them regularly and wrote to them and were treated and, and we were appointing, because Linus, of course, was, a, was, a, was the son of a king, but he became, he went into what we would say the ministry. Amen? So the royal personages in the Palatium Britannicum in Rome can be found in the lineage chart of a royal house descended from David. And of course, and that's what I want to get into now, um, it's believed that Paul himself came to Britain. There is a wealth of evidence in the ancient writings uh, and many of the fathers that Paul came to Britain beyond question, and, and that's how they, they, they put it. And of course, we know the books of Paul in Britain by uh, R.W. Morgan, uh, very much part of our BI uh, literature canon, if you like. And what I want to speak about today is, of course, this 
uh, uh, little, well, the, the book is about it, which is called the Sonini Manuscript, which those of you who know about it know that it's called the Lost Chapter of Acts. And I'm not here today to say well, it's, it was definitely the Lost Chapter of Acts, but I am here today to say that I believe it was an authentic record and document. So, uh, and of course, the Sonini Manuscript was found and it contains a record of Paul coming to Britain, which backs up much of the, as I said, the ancient testimony that he did so. And I just want to look today, folks, at some of the things that this says and how pertinent they are to us today, how relevant they are to us today. So we'll just look, we're not going to read the whole thing through, uh, but I'm just going to read some verses. Uh, and it speaks about Paul coming to uh, to Britain, and so I'm just going to read a little bit of it, not, not all of it. It says, Now when it was voiced abroad that the apostle had landed on their coast, this is in Britain, great multitudes of the inhabitants met him, and they treated Paul courteously, and he entered in at the east gate of their city, and lodged in the house of a Hebrew and one of his own nation. And on the morrow he came and stood upon Mount Lud, which is Ludgate Hill and Broadway, where St Paul's Cathedral stands in London, England. And when I used to then preach uh, down in Orange Street, I would always make a beeline for that particular uh, part of uh, London. Uh, I loved that part of London. And there was a Christian bookshop there, um, so that had some good reasons to go. But it says, and the people thronged at the gate. Now, of course, St Paul's Cathedral is, is where this, where, where it, we know it, the building of St. Paul's Cathedral, it's, this is exactly where Paul preached from. It wasn't built there, of course. Uh, but he was just standing there. It was built many years later. And the people thronged at the gate and assembled in the Broadway, and he preached Christ unto them, and they believed the word and the testimony of Jesus. And, uh, and this is a bit I want us to see. And even the Holy Ghost fell upon Paul, and he prophesied, saying, Behold in the last days. Well, how many believe are in the last days? Amen. So he's saying now, he's prophesying. If, if we believe this to be authentic, and quite frankly, who could have dreamed this up? You know, as, as a work of fiction. You know, if you go and read, get this little book, if you don't have it, and you'll be convinced. Behold in the last days, the God of peace. Now, isn't it interesting that we're in the last days and it's all about war right now? But he says the God of peace because the nations need the peace of God right now. They need the Prince of Peace. Is not a force or, or an emotion. It's a person, friends. Jesus is, of course, the Prince of Peace. And God is the God of peace. And peace is not just the absence of conflict. It's something far more fundamental. Than that. It's the very presence of God. And the atmosphere of heaven, you could say. The at wherever God is, there will be peace. So the God of peace. So he mentions the last days, and that's what we need in the nations today, the God of peace. Not peace in man's terms. Not peace, certainly, in the globalist cabal's terms. But peace in God's terms. Behold, in the last days the God of peace shall dwell in the cities. And the inhabitants thereof shall be numbered. So that's talking about a census. And in the seventh numbering of the people, their eyes shall be opened, and the glory of their inheritance shine forth, 
before them. Now, of course, it's, it's well known in our BI circles that that's talking about when sense, the censuses began in Britain or in England or whatever. And he's, he, the first census began, I think it was about 1801, I believe, because the seventh one was in 1861. And I think it points out in this book and other places that from about 1861 onwards is when British Israel truth began to be disseminated quite far and wide and many people latched upon it and were obviously glorifying God for it. From that, from the time of the seventh census in the last days. Now we're a lot further along the last days now. Amen. Now some of you may remember that census. But uh, no, 1861 roughly was about when this and so the 1860s and onwards is when, as it says here, the eyes shall be opened and the glory of their inheritance as descended from Israel shine forth before them. The nations shall come up to worship on the mount that testifieth of the patience and long suffering of a servant of the Lord. And people believe that to be a fulfillment in St. Paul's Cathedral on that very uh, mound, if you like. Is, is where many have come. And if you go to St Paul's, I know some of you have been there, every time you go, it's just full of people from the nations, foreigners and all types. And boy, do they know how to charge money at St Paul's to get in. Amen? So I used to get, I, I used to get in underneath because it was free to get in and, you know, and in, in the, the sort of the, the, the crypt down there. I didn't want to, you know, pay fortunes to, you know, uh, and, and stand with all these foreigners. And, uh, anyway, so... But it's, it's fulfilled. But look at this. Verse 11 of the Serene Manuscript, the Acts chapter 29. And in the latter days, new tidings of the gospel shall issue forth out of Jerusalem. Now, I don't see that as being Jerusalem, the city in, over in the Holy Land. Um, you know, I believe there's, there's a more mystical um, translation or interpretation of that but look at this this is where i want to go with this and the hearts of the people shall rejoice so what he's saying is in these latter days new tidings in other words there's going to be a move of god which we all pray for that that elijah move of god in the end days that we've all been praying for for so many years and i believe that's what he's saying now this is paul speaking to the folks there on Ludgate Hill. The hearts of the people shall rejoice. Now look at this. And behold, fountains shall be opened and there shall be no more plague. Powerful words. There shall be no more plague. He's speaking to people in the last days and he says there'll be no more. Because of this great move of God, there'll be no more plague. Now, we've just had two years of plague. A plague that totally didn't just dominated the headlines, but changed the nations. So much so that when people talk about, oh, we're going back to normal, there'll never be that normal again. But Paul says God's going to move and there'll be no more plague. In other words, the answer is not a medical answer. It's not a vaccine. It's not protocols. It's not masks. It's none of these things. The answer is supernatural that God is going to move so mightily. And I believe that refers to healing ministry, and I believe it refers to that everything is going to change. It will no longer be 
the death cult of the NHS that dominates the health agenda, it will be divine healing, divine life, divine health. So that's exciting. So Paul is prophesying this. And he says, in those days, and, and so we know where we are. In those days, there shall be wars and rumours of wars. So Paul's writing about March 2022. I believe it. He said, there's always been wars, there's always been rumours of wars. Yes, that's true. But, we're, but right now, we're, we're talking about a war that's unthinkably beyond anything we've ever experienced. If it, if it kicks off. And I believe that rumours of war, it just means propaganda. We could say there'll be wars and propaganda. Because there's a lot of rumours of all, you know, guess what Putin's doing now, guess what this... Guess what this one's doing there? Guess what the response is going to be? It's all rumours of war, friends. But there, are, there is a war, but there's also rumours of war. And in many ways, I would say that World War III has started. Where it goes from where it started, well, that's down to, I believe, um, our laying hold upon the Lord in prayer. And then it says, and this is a bit that I find fascinating, and this is when it says... We go back to what it says, Paul was sent to kings. Paul prophesies here, in those days there'll be wars and rumours of war, and a king shall rise up. Now that is in line with a lot of BI prophetic things that I have read, heard, and listened to over the years of a shepherd king coming to the throne of Britain who will be like his ancestor David, now, you might say, well, who's that? Is that Charles or William? I don't know, friends. I just know that I believe that. Because, and I'm going to look, I'll tell you why I believe it as, as we go on in this. But he says, in the latter days, in the last days, a king shall rise up, and his sword shall be for the healing of the nations. Now, you might say, well, he's speaking about the Lord Jesus. I, I don't see that. But of course, when the Lord comes, that's exactly what it will be. And his peacemaking shall abide in the glory of his kingdom, a wonder among princes. Now, I believe what Paul is prophesying here. And you say, well, why would God give that message to Paul? Because Paul knew kings intimately. He was, he was among their number. He, he was married into that. He, he understood all of the, their thinking. And I'd like to get into Romans, maybe don't have the time today, to look at how Paul was saying to this church at Rome about the prophets and saying about the prophet Hosea, who was speaking about in the end, you know, he was saying that those who were not my people, the low army, are going to be his people and children of the living God. In other words, he's saying that in the appointed place, those who had been divorced and were no longer even, even in the thinking or the, 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 the spectrum of what could be considered Israel. But they will be sons and daughters of the living God. And of course what he was really saying was, to these Roman kings, you're going to, your territory in effect is going to be Christian. And, and of course that, that's where... The cradle of Christianity was here in these isles and in other parts of the northern coastlands of Europe. So the fulfilment of these prophetic 
uh, words to Hosea, Isaiah and, and Elijah and so on, it was going to be fulfilled here in the Isles. And he's writing to these kings. But he, so he had this understanding of the purpose of God for a royal family, a royal line, which is pretty big if you look at the chart, but it's very much a case of what eventually would become the British royal family, that they would, they would be kings and queens over a Christian nation, over people who were once not my people, ten-tribed Israel, but are now the children of the living God. So Paul was used for God, and I believe he understood God's purpose. He was used to bring that purpose about. And so, and if we believe it was Paul, or that there's an authentic record, I do. Then he's saying, well, in the last days, there's going to be a king who is going to bring healing to the nations. Maybe just for a season, we don't know. But I believe he's speaking about a Davidic, a king of Davidic descent um, who will be a shepherd king and in a sense if you like sold out to the Lord completely wouldn't, wouldn't that be wonderful today now, I'm not knocking at our queen but what I'm saying is we, we need somebody on the throne of Britain who is absolutely sold out to Jesus and is not afraid to be public about it and is not afraid to speak out against the wickedness the darkness and the deception and to rebuke Parliament for its wickedness. And it's, isn't it interesting that we've set up a political system where the king or queen is not allowed to speak? But you know, Prince Charles doesn't have a problem speaking about the Ukraine against protocol. So I, I'm looking forward to one day having a monarch on the throne who's not afraid to say Jesus is Lord and, and, and that's how I'm going to be uh, as a monarch under the lordship of him. As I was preaching um, recently, David, uh, on Thursday night, David said that uh, about the one at Yahweh's right hand, at the Father's right hand, he said, that's my Lord. And we need a king on the throne of Britain today who unashamedly says, the one at God's right hand is my Lord. Jesus is Lord. That's the message. And, and I believe that Paul is telling us here. And of course, we could go on. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating little book. It's a fascinating thing. But what I want to do in the time we've got left, folks, is look at something in the biblical record and tie it up with this whole aspect of a royal throne being the throne of the Lord in the earth, uh, a British throne being the throne of David, the continuation of that. And why that's important to Britain today. And what Paul has given us that can activate God's purpose today in 2022. So if you turn with me please to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And this will be familiar to you. But the reason why this is not picked up. Now I've been in many prayer meetings over the years. But folks... I'm fed up going to prayer meetings where it's all about Auntie Jeannie's sore toe uh, and Uncle Tom's lumbago and you know all these trivial things that people pray about, amen? That, that have, you know, oh well, can we pray that, you know, uh, uh, the gardens around the, the council offices will, will they'll get better flowers this year, all that stuff, amen? The trivia of, of prayer meetings. 
Nothing ever. And you sit, and, you know, and the nation can be in, in crisis. And you go to prayer meetings in mainstream churches, and it's not even mentioned. In fact, if you bring it up, what do I bring that up for? But folks, because, it's because people don't pray the Bible way, and if you don't pray the Bible way, you don't get Bible results. But the, the other reason why people don't pray this is they don't see because, again, the enemy is suppressed truth. They don't understand that this, what we're about to look at, is the divine activation of Britain um, becoming what it's meant to be, the purpose of God for Britain in the earth. And again, this revelation was given to Paul. I hear a lot of people talk about the Pauline revelation and all about justification and, you know, about the law and grace and everything. And wonderful, yes, wonderful. But this is what they miss out because they don't know what Paul was speaking about here. And, and its relation to us in Britain. So let's just read into it. Paul says, I exhort therefore that first of all, not if you manage to remember, not if you, if you, if you think about it, or if you, if you feel led. Well, I, I don't feel led to pray the Bible way today. Well, you know, who's leading you then? He says, I exhort that first of all, in other words, the priority in prayer. Okay, and it's not, as I said, Auntie Gino's, Auntie Jeannie's Soto and all that stuff. First of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. So what Paul's saying is, what we would say, uh, in our understanding, is that Paul is praying for the blessing of Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. Because the Abraham, the blessing of Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, is to be a blessing to every family on earth. So it's not just, well, pray for all. Yes, it means salvation, and we want that, don't we? We pray for the Elijah outpouring. We pray for the great move of God. We believe will, will come before the return of the Lord. We believe for all that. So he's saying, well, pray for that. But he, he's not just saying what folks, you know, just pray for revival. Let's just pray for revival. Let's have a prayer meeting. Let's, let's believe God for revival. He's not saying that and leaving it at that. He's saying there is a strategy that, that has been revealed to him. Why has it been revealed to Paul? Because Paul was sent to kings. And Paul specifically was sent to kings who at that time were the ancestors and the forefathers of our present royal house. And, 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 you know, not the only ones, of course, but, but he could only connect with the people that were there at the time. But look what it says, for kings. So Paul said, if you want to reach the people, all men, you have to pray for the leaders over them. You have to pray for kings, because kings are the gatekeepers. You know, if you win a king, you win the nation. Now, every single revival in the Old Testament, what we would call revival, was because a king turned to the Lord. Not in, the, of course, the kingdom of Israel, but in the kingdom of Judah, they had good kings. And um, the, the, those kings, when those kings, their hearts were right with God, the nation, the people followed along. Because the principle is where the head goes, the body will fall. 
So he's saying pray for those who are over, pray for kings. Now, we need to understand, well, we, we don't have kings today. We, we have presidents, we have prime ministers, we have all these people. But brothers and sisters, we should be rejoicing before God this afternoon because we do have a royal family. We have kings, we have, we have a monarch. And not only a monarch, we have a monarch who sits on the throne of the Lord. So yeah, I, I, what I'm trying to say here is this, is that Paul writing, you know, millennia back, he's speaking, this is still God's word, isn't it? It still speaks today, but he's, speak, he's speaking to Britain today, I believe God, the Holy Spirit, is, is speaking to Britain today, because thank God, we're not a republic. Thank God, we're not, uh, not these other systems of government that are man-made, antichrist, Babylonian systems. We have a kingdom here in Britain, and it's the kingdom based on the throne of the Lord, the Davidic throne. So I don't know if this is speaking to Americans, because they might say, well, we don't have a king, we've got a president. That's great. He says, and for all that an authority, in other words, those that serve our monarch. And that would be Boris. That would be all these politicians and so on, because they're supposed to serve God, the throne, and the people. Now, of course, they don't. But folks, that's why we need to pray. And you know, you, folks don't like this when you preach it in the mainstream churches. Oh, we don't, we don't want that. That's, this is the Bible way. And thank God that's what, what we're about in, in, in uh, BI circles. But pray, he says, for kings and for all that are in authority. In other words, you have to deal with this matter that if you don't pray in accordance with God's will, in accordance with God's word, and in obedience to God's word, for those who have the authority over you, if you don't pray for them, then what's going to happen is, what's happened right now, is that you will have antichrist rulers in. And they're not interested in being national leaders or shepherds, they're rulers. You will obey. Okay? So, when I see Britain today, I really believe this, that not enough folks have been praying this Bible way. Because the result of it, he makes very clear. He says, you have to pray for kings. Thank God. Now, do you think, and I do, do you think when Paul's writing about kings, he's thinking about the king of some nation in Africa or South America or, or just kings, just kings, just kings. Who do you think Paul is speaking about? And I, I know who I believe. He's speaking about Davidic kings, I believe. And he's speaking, in, in, and I really believe this, he's speaking, he's in his thinking because of his connection with and what God has shown him about the importance that Britain must be Christianized. He's thinking, I believe, about the British royals. And Paul would have been aware that it wasn't just the Silurians, there were many other uh, kingdoms, tribes, and so on, chieftains even. But of course, they would all eventually come into that one seat of government, which was the Davidic throne in Britain. Firstly, in England, of course, we had kings in, uh, in the High King of Ireland, High Kings in Ireland. We had kings in Scotland, but eventually became the British throne. Who knows? Paul maybe even had a revelation of that. We don't know. 
But he says pray for them. And for all that in authority. And why? Because here's the result of such prayer. That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. Now are we leading quiet and peaceable lives in Britain today? We're living in a situation just now where if you've got a whistling kettle and it, go, it starts to whistle, you don't know if it's a bomb overhead or that, that the kettle's what. Because of everything that's going on that, that could immediately escalate within minutes. But he says the result of praying for kings is that you'll have a quiet and peaceable life. So if we don't have a quiet and peaceable life, folks, not enough of praying for kings then. Because Bible praying gets Bible results. And then he says, in all godliness and honesty. So in other words, it's not just you'll have, you can have peace on man's terms. You can have peace in the absence of conflict. But he says, in all godliness and honesty. In other words, he's saying the society you live in will be peaceful and it will be founded on godliness. And honesty, not deception, not propaganda, not all that junk that we get from our media. So I, I believe what he's saying is even our media will be honest. Our source of information, which is not right now. So if we want that type of society, we need to start. Now, now we say, well, I'm preaching to the choir here. Yes, but the problem is, is that there aren't enough of us. And you know, a lot in the mainstream churches, I believe, are praying against this. Because when you pray for an antichrist agenda, you're praying against the purpose of God. And you know, a lot of folks out there, they, they, don't, they don't know what a royal throne is. And they don't know God's purpose in the nation, so how can they pray for it? And it's interesting because you will, if you pray... Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That'll cover it all. But you know, Christians don't pray that. They don't. Because they'd rather pray their opinion than God's will. I've probably told this story, but I've got a friend who's, who's a, a very strong unionist, uh, really believes in our union. Uh, and during the Scottish referendum, he was addressing a group of Christians and... He didn't, want to, he didn't want to impose upon them his thinking. That he, he's a unionist. And let's just pray. He wanted to. He wanted to, let's just pray that this independence thing be smashed. And he said, but no, he says, look, folks, he says, you may have all of your own opinions, but can we all agree? Because he believed God's will was union. So he says, let's just pray that God's will be done. And this woman attacked him, told him he was demon possessed. Because she was an nationalist. And she thought they should all be praying. So he's demon possessed because he says, let's pray the prayer that Jesus taught. That is the warped and wicked and twisted thinking, not of unbelievers, but of some believers. So a lot of people just don't, this, this is compute Christians I'm speaking, because who else is going to pray? So they don't pray this prayer. But folks, this is a prayer that I, because if you're praying for our queen, our morning here in Britain, what you're praying, and in the time we've got left, we'll look at what you're praying for. He says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Now, let me just say this to you right now. That is me what he's saying is you will create an atmosphere for revival when you pray for kings. 
pray for British royalty, pray for a royal house. Very, very quickly, folks, because our time is, is run out now. Let's just turn to the two Psalms that we know of, just very briefly. Psalm 89, these are Davidic Psalms, Psalms of God's purpose in our Davidic throne, in our British throne. Psalm 89, and we know that very well. Uh, but I just want to show you this. If you pray for a royal house, this is what you're praying for. And, and Paul, is, Paul was the one that God gave this revelation. I, Paul would know these Psalms. He would be able to recite them, particularly in his, uh, you know, his learning uh, as, a, as, a, as a scholar and what, what, what's known as a rabbi. Now look at this. I will sing of the mercy of the Lord forever. And he says, I've made a covenant verse here with my chosen. I've sworn unto David, my servant, my seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne. When we pray for a royal house, we're praying Psalm 89. That God would build up his throne. You know, now that throne is never going to be destroyed, but it can come into a place where the glory is very much, you know, a place of declension, it says so further in the psalm. That's why we need to pray. Now watch this, it says here, verse 23, because we don't have time to do it all. I will be, this is a promise to persons, kings and queens who sit on our royal throne. I will beat down his foes before his place, face sorry, and plague them that hate him, or her, if it's a queen. And then that wonderful verse 27. I will make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. You see, there is a throne that's higher than any other throne, than any other office. And you know who hates this truth? The man who sits in the Vatican. And, sadly, the man who sits in the White House. And any other throne. Those that know of it. Because they will not bow the knee to King Jesus. And they, and they will not uh, give fealty to he or she who sits on the throne of the Lord here in Britain. And folks, when, we and I, when you and I pray for our royal throne, for our, for our king, our queen who sits on that throne, we are praying God's purpose. And that's exactly what Paul told us to pray. And then finally, and we'll close with this, Psalm 72. Now, this is a psalm for Solomon. And what it really means is, is that it's not just for David. You know, God didn't say, well, I'm fed up with this Davidic throne stuff. So I, I, I'm, going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to temper it down as time goes on. I'm going to tone it down now. A lot of people would think that, wouldn't they? That, oh, well, over time, God will just skip sort of, like, well, that's old hat. No, 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 folks. This is for every single occupant of that throne up to this present day. And it's going to be the case for the Lord Jesus when he sits on that throne. And I'd love to read the whole psalm, but we don't have time. So look at Psalm 72, and it says, He shall come down, this is the, 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 the person that sits on the throne of David, He shall come down like rain, verse 6, upon the morning grass, as showers that water the earth. In his days shall the righteous flourish in abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. And just very quickly saying, he's talking about the river Euphrates there, and the ends of the earth mean here in the British Isles, and what he's saying is all of that. He'll have dominion over all those waters, all the seas, as the British Navy wants to. 
And then finally, verse 15. He shall live, this is the, the monarch upon David's throne, and to him shall be given of the gold of Sheba. Prayer also shall be made for him continually. Do you believe, because I do, when Paul says pray for kings, he was thinking of that verse. Prayer shall be made for kings continually. And as I said, it's kings in our royal line of David. And daily shall he be praised. In other words, folks don't run down the monarchy. But they build it up by saying, God bless our queen. God save our queen. And then finally verse 17 says, His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun and men shall be blessed in him, all nations shall call him blessed. Now you may say, well that's messianic, and I would agree with you, of course it's messianic. Is it speaking about the Lord Jesus? Of course it is. But folks, it's also speaking about those who sit in this temporal time, in history, upon that throne. And that's why it's so important for us. And so Paul's uh, use by God of, uh, if you like, God's prophetic destiny for Britain it was in Paul's lifetime his influence on how Britain at that time became a Christian nation and then became the, the Celtic church the Chaldee church and up to this day that testimony and witness and presence if you like of churches and so on in Britain Paul was instrumentally used by God for that but he speaks today in the scriptural record and if you accept the Sunini manuscripts authenticity he speaks in that prophetic voice down through the centuries saying to us today, it's not all doom and gloom. If you believe in the vision and the purpose of God for this nation, then we will see mighty things in our land. And we will see someone on it. And I don't know who it is. So don't badger me because I don't know. But I believe that God is saying the destiny of our... Jesus is not going to come back, I believe, for some wretch or curse sitting on that throne. I don't believe that because the Bible says that he will inherit the nations and I believe that's speaking about Israel nations in particular but I believe that Jesus is going to return for a throne of glory in the earth so praise the Lord I hope that's been of blessing to you Amen